What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is the voice of the working class, Rick Smith. And welcome, brothers, sisters, working class heroes. This is the Rick Smith Show. Thanks so much for being here today on the big program. Lots to get to. Lots to talk about. This week was the launch of... The Campaign to End U.S. Child Labor. Uh, what this is, as I understand it, I've signed on to be a participant because we do need to end child labor violations, not just here at home, but across the globe. Uh, but this brings together all kinds of nonprofit groups, uh, academics, trade unions, anyone who cares about kids, really, um, all working to ensure that, well, child labor isn't exploited, that kids uh, aren't exploited, that labor rights are respected, that we're not, well, we're not stealing the youth of our children uh, for the profit of corporate America, that we give them the shot that they deserve, uh, that, that we, sh- we should all want for them. And that's the chance to get a good education, to have a childhood, and to become productive, engaged citizens. That's what I think we want for all of our kids. And I know it's what, what I want for my kids. And and here's the thing. Uh, you know, I've had people say, well, you're against child labor. No, I'm not. I'm ex- I'm against exploitive child labor. Uh, my kids, they've all had jobs. Uh, when I was a kid, had tons of jobs. Uh, I think they're, I think kids having that kind of toe in the water of the workforce is a good thing. Not something they have to do, something they're excited about doing. It's a new adventure. They're learning what it takes to earn a dollar. They're learning those those working class skills of showing up on time, of doing doing a good job. That idea of a fair day's work for a fair day's pay, being ingrained at a, at a young age, and that if you want something, you got to work for it. All those good frames. But not doing it in a way that, well, they learn the opposite. That they're, that they're just cheap labor. That's disposable. And this is where I'm, I'm struggling with where we are. 
Uh, what's happened, especially when you're talking about poor and working class kids, is it becomes about, you know, well, how are you going to go to college? Did you save enough? And and we've heard all these stories from people. You know, when I was a kid, yeah, okay, when you were a kid, was it right that you were exploited? No. And you should want better for your kids. Uh, look, I did a lot of things, uh, you know, that I go back and go, yeah, that was a little shaky, a little, little shady, probably not the best thing for me. Wish there might have been someone that go, hey, don't do that. Or, hey, you can't do that. Because, look, when I was a kid, I was I was bulletproof in, in my mind. I could do just about anything. I could do anything. Uh, I, you know, I fell off a ladder at 25 feet, bounced right back up, climbed right back up. What did I know? Could have been really seriously hurt. What was I doing 20 feet, 25 feet off the ground with, with, on a ladder with a bucket of paint in one hand and a brush in the other? Um, well, I was painting somebody's garage because, hey, the, that's what they paid me to do. Maybe we don't allow that to happen to 10 and 11-year-olds. Just kind of a thought. So when I see this, this agenda to, to deal with the child labor violations, because understand, they're through the roof right now. Uh, we're finally doing a little bit of enforcement, but nowhere near what needs to be done. We're seeing these stories coming up because, well, we're, we're starting to look for them. It's not that this is new, because it's not. We've always allowed a certain amount of, of child exploitation, as long as it was, well, those kids. You know, the poor. You know, they learn, they learn a little bit better because they're poor. They're going to work a little harder, be a little more grateful. And I look at this agenda that they have, and you can check it out as well, enduschildlabor.org, the website. And they, they go through some very simple, common sense things. Um, maybe, maybe protect the, the unaccompanied, uh, migrant children that are coming to this country and maybe don't allow them to be separated from their parents. Maybe have some way of ensuring that, well, we deal with our immigration system a little bit better. You know, we can have the debate about how, what we should be doing and how they, we should be bringing people in or even if, but you know, the reality is you go back and you look at the separation policies that went on. We just threw kids into the wind kind of stupid. Uh, they call for closing child labor loopholes between agricultural and non-agricultural work. Probably not a bad idea. Probably not a bad idea to update our, our outdated labor laws. Uh, they call for stronger consequences for people who violate child labor laws. They call for increased enforcement, something we should probably all want. And they call for holding people accountable when they're caught breaking the law. And, and I would argue, you know, Maybe you know, the kind of fines and penalties that are, are really, and this is what they call for as well, a true deterrence, but that are painful. Not just the, oh, we'll post a notice and swear to never do it again, or we'll pay the, you know, the $50 fine, uh, but, but actual pain in penalty. Maybe lock the CEO up for six months. Uh, maybe go that route, because clearly the, uh, the fine route, it's not, it's not mattering. Uh, they say we need to be creating some strong legislation to hold corporations accountable. Well, we're doing just the opposite. We're weakening child labor laws in this country. And, and while the rest of the globe is trying to figure out how to get where we are, we're trying to figure out how to get where they are. Because, of course, well, it, it is all about cheap labor, right? Uh, we should be pursuing policies to get child labor out of our supply chains. 
But that's not what corporate America wants. They need cheap labor. And as I've said a million times, cheap labor and lax environmental regulations, it's like heroin to a CEO. They, they can't quit it. And this is where you need to have the intervention. This is where you need to have we the people step in and go, no, we actually do care about children. Where are my pro-life people? Saw a woman the other day with a T-shirt, unapologetically pro-labor. And I'm, or, I mean, pro, uh, pro, pro-life. And I go, well, how about, uh, here's an idea. How about uh, taking care of those kids? How about being against these kind of changes in child labor law? Uh, that conversation did not go well. But here's the thing. What we do need to do is we need to update our, child, our, our labor laws. They're badly outdated. You know, the, you think about the, the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, what, 35, 38? The National Labor Relations Act, you know, same era, 35. Yeah, you go major legislation then doesn't deal with our conditions today. We need to update those those laws. We need to strengthen uh, labor rights. We need to strengthen the minimum wage. We need to to to, again, look at this, this how we handle agricultural and non-agricultural employment. Uh, We need to do a lot of things to protect workers rights to organize. Uh, We need to stop destroying what we have and the bigger part and this is what this this campaign is calling for and i think this is the biggest part of all of it and if you want to take a look at it and uschildlabor.org the website the biggest part of this uh, that i think is the last point that they make uh, a social protection system to prevent all children and families from falling into poverty that is that's the key to all of this because look it's not going to be my children who are going to go working in the slaughterhouses and in dangerous jobs. It's not. Um, I would never allow it because one, we don't need the money, and I, I don't. I would see no benefit. Uh, but I do, as I've said, my kids have all had had jobs because I believe there there is some some positives that come from work, that accomplish that sense of accomplishment, that earned self confidence. But it's not going to be my kids who do these dangerous jobs. It's going to be people who are desperate. And if you have economic desperation in a large portion of the working class that we do have, the distribution of wealth in this country is obscene. But when you have families who it isn't a choice, we got to send the the 10 or 12 year old out to get a job to put food on the table. We've got to have that eighth grader who just completed eighth grade drop out of eighth grade and then go work on the farm so we can keep a roof over our head. That that is a situation that we cannot allow to have happen. And for me, the end of this is, you know, what what would you want for your children? What kind of a scenario do you want for your kids? And then how about we do that for all kids? And that's not just in work. That's in, in health care. It's in, in education. It's in all of it. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Quick break. When we come back, Nita Mast from EPI is going to be here to share some thoughts on, on child labor and the states who are attacking it. Is this red hat, blue hat? We'll find out.
We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work for America. We are AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees. We represent 700,000 federal and D.C. government workers who are the vital threads of the fabric of American life. We support our nation's military. We take care of our nation's veterans. We protect our nation's borders. We respond to our nation's crises and natural disasters. We provide services to our nation's seniors. The American Federation of Government Employees. We work... For America. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So as we've been talking about over the last several months, uh, the, the Red Hat Blue Hat game, uh, which has been, uh, you know, something I've been trying to get us away from, but sadly the moneyed interest want to make sure that we're continuing to fight on those grounds. But look, the legislative pushes in a lot of these states come down to Red, red Hat Blue Hat. And as we've been talking about, child labor law violations are going up. Uh, The number of employers that are are blatantly violating the laws through the roof. And, well, states are going, hey, let's not just enforce them better. Let's, well, loosen the restrictions. Get those kids back to work like we used to do in the old days. And I got to tell you, it's, it's kind of... It's kind of frightening to see where we're going. Uh, that's why I'm, I was glad to see that the folks over at the Economic Policy Institute uh, have moved forward and, and written a, a good piece on, well, what we should be doing and what what's going on, what's happening. Uh, that's why I've asked Nina Mass to come talk with us. She is the senior, or she's the the economic analyst, state economic analyst person there at the Earn Project at EPI. Uh, Nina, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me. So walk me through some of the, the states that we are seeing, because as we've been talking about on the show over the last several months, this idea of red hat, blue hat, the red states pursuing a certain line of policies, uh, the, the no rights at work agenda, assaults on unemployment, assaults on workers' rights to organize, assaults on education, all of that stuff. And then on the other side, you've got you know expanding voting rights and those kind of things. So you expect certain states, based on their political makeup, to be going in certain directions. Uh, this this child labor thing seems to be fitting that mold pretty well as I see it. I'm curious what you found. Yeah, that's more or less true. Um, you know, in our tracking of these bills, we're not necessarily focused specifically on the, the partisan nature of the bills, although, you know, we're, we're more focused on the content of the bills um, and the, the threat that they pose to child labor law in the state. Although, you know, it is clear that the bills that have been introduced in Republican controlled state legislatures have certainly been the predominant pattern and have generally made more progress, um, whether they're being, you know, um, either being passed in the House or the Senate or just making more progress through the session. Um, so right now in the 2024 legislature, we're tracking bills in um, at least 11 states just in 2024. And I, 
I'm not sure if all of these bills are were be were are proposed in um, Republican controlled legislatures, but certainly the ones that have been passed or um, are threatening to pass are in those types of states. So states like Kentucky, Indiana, Florida, um, Georgia, Alabama. These are the states that we're seeing bills really moving and um, potentially being passed this session. Yeah, and look, you know, you look at the bills that have been passed since 2021 through your reporting. Uh, you've got, you know, Ohio and West Virginia and North Carolina and Alabama and Tennessee and Kentucky, very red states, uh, along with, you know, Michigan, New Jersey, uh, New Hampshire, sort of-ish, uh, red state-ish, blue state-ish. Uh, but you, it's it's really heavily weighted towards red states. But you do have this push of some blue states loosening restrictions as well. We're we're in a moment where I think we should not be loosening these restrictions, but making sure that you know employers are following the ones we've already got. I agree, definitely. And you know the laws on the books in many states are already pretty minimal, and haven't been updated in some cases in decades. So at a time when violations are really skyrocketing across the country, we need to be strengthening the law not proposing these rollbacks, even if they are, um, they seem more benign, they're all part of this larger agenda to roll back standards to or even below the federal minimum. And so, and that really poses a problem for enforcement and just for the larger state of the landscape when it comes to the child labor laws we have. Now, what's interesting to me is I've gotten a lot of pushback from people who go, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we, you get a lot of that, especially when you get to be my age, you get a lot of, well, you know, when I was a kid, we used to do this and you go, uh, no, you were never allowed to to climb up in a tree with a chainsaw. Uh, that was illegal right. even when I was a kid. Uh, you may have done it, but it was still not, not legal. And should we want kids doing that? Is that the kind of society that we want to have? And and I, I, hope, I hope that answer universally would be no. We want to make sure that kids are in the classroom getting an education because we've seen, we saw the movie of what happens when you take kids, you know, let's say, Make them complete eighth grade, for instance, like the folks in Indiana want to do, so you can get them back on the farms. We see what happens to people's lives when you do those kind of things, and it's not great for them or society. Right. I mean, and you bring up some great points, too, around enforcement. We have these stories, of course, of people working in violation of the law as young people. Um, And part of the issue there is that many of the laws we do have are not adequately enforced because of underfunding and understaffing at the federal department of labor and at state labor agencies as well. So even the laws we do have, we can't adequately enforce. That's not even, you know, approaching the issue of the proposed rollbacks of the laws we do have. Um, and so it's a really scary trend to see this, this sort of um, a pattern of attempted rollbacks in these, in these states. And the laws we have are really pretty minimal to protect people, to protect youth from, um, you know, the, the worst effects of excessive or dangerous work, dropping out of high school, um, failing to graduate, and then facing this lifetime of lower earnings and higher unemployment rates, um, you know, losing their limbs or losing their lives at these, in these really dangerous jobs. Um, I think those are pretty basic protections that we are trying to safeguard. Um, and they're really being threatened 
in states across the country. No, I agree. And look, you know, I'm I'm all in favor of kids working. Look, all, my kids have have had jobs in over the summertime. My son's been a lifeguard for a couple of years. My daughter worked in a restaurant for a little bit. Um, you know, during the summer, you know, during uh, the weekends, I'm I'm in, I encourage them to do that because it, they learn a lot of lessons. They learn what it takes to earn a dollar. They learn to be a little bit frugal with their money because they earned it. There, there's some really good positive things that come out of it. But I, I don't want that to be, well, um, you're starting your working career at, at 12 or 13 or 14, and that's that's where you're going to be pigeonholed. And, oh, by the way, you're competing with mom and dad for the jobs that they're doing. That's not the point, in my view. The point is th those first jobs should be learning jobs. They should be the, the kind of things that – that, that help them succeed, not create an entire industrial base out of. Right. And and that's the that's something that we try to tell people often as well is there are already so many jobs that young people can do legally that are age appropriate, that are safe, that that are useful in as a learning experience, like you say. Um, the jobs that we're trying to prevent youth from being employed in are these exploitative, low wage, dangerous jobs that really can can force youth into this lifetime of um, precarious work that does not help them thrive and take them, you know, lead them to a, a, a beneficial career where they're doing a job that's good quality, that pays them well, that is family supporting. And so that's really the, the trajectory we're trying to prevent with these types of, with, with the laws we have and the laws that we're trying to get proposed to strengthen these protections. Now, I don't know how much how much you know digging into this you've you've done on on this particular point that I want to make, but I've been saying from the beginning these aren't my kids. Uh, my kids, you know, they they worked you know because they wanted to. They worked because hey, this is it, it's fun. Uh, they were excited to go to these jobs because it was a new adventure. But they didn't have to. Uh, it wasn't wasn't something that the family de desperately needed. It wasn't something that I you know, said you're you're, you're going to have to do. This was this was voluntarily for our family, and it was it was meant to be educational as well as to earn a couple of bucks as well. But sadly, for for too many, that's not the reality especially when you're looking at black and brown communities and when you're looking at, you know, the kind of you know community I grew up in, a high poverty uh, minority community like, like where I lived. Uh, this is who's being exploited in this. And that really is my big problem. The voiceless seem to be the ones who, again, are being kicked while they're down and exploited while, well, no one's there to, to protect them. That's right. I mean, it's certainly the, the racial and the implications and class implications of these types of rollbacks are really can't be overstated. Um, we know that children from low-income families who um, are more likely to be black and brown children are working in these dangerous jobs because they're forced by their economic circumstances into this type of work. It's not just to make a few dollars. It's not just to have a learning experience. It's to provide for their families to, um, to survive. Um, in the case of migrant youth, it's to, to pay back debt that, that they accrued just to get here, um, to pay back their sponsor or just to be able to put food on the table. These are not these are these are not kids who are just scooping ice cream for a few hours a week to make some have some spending money. I mean, of course, we say that the laws on the books are protect, to protect everyone, including those kids. But um these low-income kids, black and brown youth, are really the ones that are being um, 
disproportionately harmed by these types of rollback legislation. And, you know, it's connected to a whole other host, a whole other broader agenda um, we're, we're seeing from the right to make it harder to access food stamps, to block Medicaid expansion, to restrict unemployment insurance. And so the, the attacks we're seeing on low-income families through the lens of child labor, we're also seeing in a lot of other ways. And these are the same, um, the proponents of rolling back child labor are the same people who are fighting to um, relegate low-income people to this to this life of precarious work with no social safety net, with no um, ability to join or form a union, um, to to take their power and force them to, to do this low-income and really dangerous work. And, and um, poverty wage These work. issues are all connected. Yeah. No, look, and I'm glad you brought up the union issue because I'm a union guy. I, I think you know the way we reunite this country is we we reunionize. The way we we share wealth a little bit better is we 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 reunionize and negotiate for those higher wages and better benefits. Uh, but you know, I'm seeing this coming at an interesting time while they're attacking child labor laws. So you know, hey, we can get those kids back into the slaughterhouses because they've got small hands; they can fit between the blades. Um, you know. It's interesting to me to see that this push is happening while simultaneously you've got a push of working people saying we're not doing these crummy low paying jobs for crummy low pay. It seems like maybe it's just me. I don't know. But it it seems, I don't know, a little coincidental. Yeah, I mean, there's you certainly bring up an interesting parallel. I mean, we, we saw coming out of the pandemic that low wage workers were finally, you know, um, earning. Earning slightly higher wages than they were pre-pandemic. They, they finally had some ability to negotiate um, higher wages. And so at a, at a time when we're seeing slightly improved um, bargaining power across low-income workers, that's the same time that we're seeing these proposals to um, really turn to children and to young people who they can pay these low wages and exploit young people who don't know their rights or who are um, are just easier to hire in these positions because they they don't they have lower wage expectations or they don't know their their value in the workplace, um, and so it's it's certainly connected to the the broader economic conditions we're seeing. And I would also argue it's about getting you know getting the parents back in line. Uh, you know, we've seen CEOs for a while now saying, you know, we need you know, we need a good you know bit of unemployment to get those working people grateful to us again instead of, well, us being grateful for them. Uh, Got to get things back to the natural order. Uh, and I just I just find all of this just kind of plays right into the same pot, uh, exploiting poor and desperate working conditions uh, and working people to, to end up making them grateful again. And it's it's frustrating and angering. Uh, last question I've got for you, because there are some states that that I would categorize as, you know, as blue states, as blue hat states. Um, you know, I don't want them expanding this stuff, these these kind of uh, destructive policies any more than I want red states to do it. Uh, what, what do you say to people in, in all the states on how to stop this? And, you know, what's what's the the way forward to ensure that that we actually do protect kids? I know we we got the family values people and the pro-life people, but how do we actually really protect these kids? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways that that um, we can get involved in strengthening the laws. I mean, there are many states um, this year and in, in, in previous sessions um, who are increasingly interested in actually strengthening the state laws on the books. Um, and we're seeing some really promising proposals in many states to do that. 
Um, so, for example, Illinois just recently introduced a pretty comprehensive child labor law to strengthen the protections they have at the state level and to sort of close um, longstanding gaps or exemptions in the law that that do exist. So, um, you know, listeners can really can can reach out to their legislators, can can indicate their support for bills like this and can indicate their opposition to, to bills that would roll back child labor protections. Yeah. And then we also have a lot of basic um, policy recommendations that need to be implemented, like raising the minimum wage. It's a really basic way of raising the floor for all workers, including youth. Um, we can eliminate subminimum wages. You know, young people can be paid less just based on their age and their student status and their job classification. Um, and these are, you know, there are, there are, there's a whole host of policy solutions that we can um, that we can reach to to protect youth and all workers um but it really just takes um more pushing against these negative bills um calling them out for what they are these industry-backed um proposals and speaking out that we really do support strengthening the laws we have Oh, as uh, if corporate America, my general rule is always, as my grandfather always said, if a rich guy is going to take a buck out of his pocket to tell you you don't need something, you better spend two to get it. So when I see corporate America spending a boatload of money on lobbying to to to, to destroy child labor laws, it, it's my natural inclination to say we better figure out how to quickly uh, spend to save them because they understand return on investment and exploiting our children a huge investment for them. But Nina, I appreciate you taking some time for us. Great work over there at the EPI blog. Hope folks will take a look at it, epi.org. Nina Mass, thanks so much. Thank you. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. What do you think? Uh, Should states be loosening or strengthening child labor protections? And what are your stories? Uh, Were you up in the tree 50 feet off the ground with the chainsaw? I sure hope not. Back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So some interesting news coming out about 2023. Uh, Evidently, according to government data, 2023 saw the most strike action involving at least a thousand workers in, in a couple of decades. And what this means is that means is, you know, you know, coming out of the pandemic, Working people were saying, you know what, I've had enough. Had enough of getting screwed over, had enough of stagnant wages, uh, inflation's costing us more. We demand better wages, hours, conditions. And 2023, we saw the most strikes uh, since, you know, like I said, two decades is what they're saying. And, you know, you go back to the last time we saw, you know, you know big strike activity of this kind is, you know, you know, back in 81, you know, when the, the, you know, 
the, the Reagan folks were, were ramping up uh, when you saw you know, Reagan fire the Patco workers. That year, there were 100 and, 145 strikes that year that, in, that were 1,000 workers or more. Now, understand, back then what you saw were a lot higher union density environment. There were more union workers. There was more manufacturing here. There was there was there were more jobs for people for working people, that were that were good solid wage jobs. And what we're starting to see is you know thanks to the Biden administration, uh, thanks to this commitment to reshoring manufacturing and investing in our future, you're starting to see workers say, oh you know what, we we want a part of that as well. Uh, so this is kind of kind of a big deal. And and one of the one of the good things, I think, coming out of the pandemic. Now the UAW, who saw a big strike in 2023, a big victorious strike, a very lucrative strike for the members who created massive profits for the for the big three. Understand, this is one of those scenarios where you go, these workers created enormous profit for these companies. Enormous profit for the shareholders. They were, they were, they were, they were okay. <laughs> they were fat and happy. And the workers are going, hey, you know, we're the ones who are doing all this work. We're the ones who are, are you know, struggling. We, we should, we should get part of that. Uh, you know, we should get some of the the wealth that our labor creates. And that's where we saw a very successful strike, because we, the people, society, those of us who who pay attention. Uh, we we kind of we we were on their side, as we should have been. And and they did very well. Uh, well, now what you're seeing is the UAW announced this week that they are going to commit forty million dollars to organizing auto workers in the U.S. and you know battery the battery workers who are going to be the next generation of jobs. And and you go, it's about time. You know, good on them for coming out and saying, "Look, we're gonna we're we're staking the future on on organizing now." Which you know, again, I've been saying for years, the labor movement has got to you know lay it down, uh, drop it big on the table. And you know, what I used to get from people is, "Well, you know, we're just keeping the powder dry," or you know. And the great thing about keeping the powder dry is, when it's all over, you got plenty of dry powder. Uh, so I'm glad to see this. Now, what's interesting to me is, I was. I was reading a story over at Fortune magazine, um, and it was talking about the CEO of Ford, uh, who claims that they've been worrying about you know Chinese EVs for years. Uh, says the you know the world's changed, uh, and he wants to work with his you know his, his rivals to to catch up and make cheaper batteries. And what this is, this is kind of a white flag of the CEO class going, we really screwed up, we screwed up badly. We're behind again on what the future is going to bring. Because remember, the big three missed completely the you know the, the late seventies, early eighties, and they pushed towards smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles that gave the Japanese automakers a huge leg up. So now, seeing the CEO of Ford, this Jim Farley, come out and saying, "Look, you know we're, you know we're, you know we we gotta." We we got to work with our partners. We got our, our enemies and our rivals, and you know because we got to catch up. Because they claim that roughly forty percent of what the EV uh, is going to cost is in the battery. 
So the battery is where the, the money is. And what I found interesting as I was reading through the article is this guy is saying that, you know, the Chinese have this advantage because they control the technology. They've got the, the product. They've got the manufacturing base. They've, they've got the, the knowledge. They've, they've got it all. And, well, the big three, not so much. And, you know, as they were going through talking about, you know, what they need to create for the future and, and how they're going to, um, you know, you know, move hopefully into the future and be competitive is by, by doing what they had. Um, understand, they had this technology years ago and they quashed it. Uh, they had the ability to control the supply chain from top to bottom and they gave it away. They had the ability to control their own destiny and for short-term profits, they decided that it was better to run off to China and to give away the tech technology. Because remember, you know, it was the geniuses on these corporate boards who were deciding that it's in the best interest of the companies, it's in the best interest of, of you know, of, of the shareholders to basically offshore the manufacturing and chase, chase really cheap labor, go after exploitable labor, go after exploitable lax regulations. And now they're going, uh-oh, we kind of gave away the store. We gave away the productive capacity. We gave away the, you know, the technology. Because one of the things the Chinese did that was really smart, and I've, I've talked about this over the years, as you got to give them credit. They weren't stupid like a lot of other uh, countries w allowing U.S. companies in to dominate uh, certain portions of manufacturing. No, no, the Chinese wanted it all. The Chinese saw the elephant. They didn't just want the elephants behind. And they took it over. Uh, because in order to, to you know, have a manufacturing facility in China, you're not the majority owner. You have to have a Chinese partner that is the majority owner. But you make all kinds of profits, and it's great because the shareholders are happy. CEOs are happy. You know, the wealth class thrilled beyond compare. Uh, it's the workers who get screwed. But, you know, and the consumers make out too. understand the consumers on the short term made out because they got cheaper goods, much more cheaply made. So the, the wealth class was happy. The consuming class was somewhat happy until it became to the breaking point where, uh oh, this is costing us more jobs than it's, it's saving us. Uh, we're now seeing the industries that used to compete in these spaces going away being bought up by Chinese firms. We're no longer setting the agenda. And what happened is that the Chinese ended up dominating the market, raising prices, and guess what? American companies are, are out in the cold. But hey, the good thing is they made short-term profit. So again, the shareholders were thrilled. The CEO class was thrilled. Who got screwed? It was working people. And we've seen this happen Time and time again, we've seen this play out time and time again. And autos is going, the auto industry could be that next place if we don't do something about it. Understand how this stuff works. You get these companies to come in. Uh, you get these Chinese firms to, okay, we'll make your widget for, you know, for pennies on the dollar. Uh, and you can sell them to consumers and still make a healthy profit. 
And then they put out all their competition, put them all out of business. So they now dominate the market. And now they raise the prices so that they can profit from it. Only they don't do it under the name of the company that had the original the original patents and the original technology. No, no, we get new ones because they reverse engineer everything. And oh, by the way, uh, the patent protections that you, you enjoy here in the U.S., yeah, they don't do so well over there. And I've heard these stories for years. We've had guests on this program for years talking about how their intellectual property was stolen. We hear it all the time. You know, intellectual property theft's the biggest problem. No, 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 no. You chose to go there. You chose to give away that technology. That's on you, CEO. That's on you, board of directors. You knew it was going to happen. You did it anyway because of the greed. It was too much. Couldn't help yourselves. You had to make that profit. Had to line those pockets. So to see, you know, this Jim Farley guy going, hey, we're going to rebuild what we had. Because understand, the auto industry, they used to control all of the, the, the supply chains. You know, growing up as a kid in Cleveland, I remember the Ford and the Chevy plant were there. And across the street were a bunch of feeder plants that fed right into it. They had direct access. They had local control. And in many cases, they owned those businesses as well. They controlled their own destiny. They controlled their supply chains. If something, if something was needed, they got it. And what the pandemic showed us is, oh, they're not in control of their own destiny. Which is why, again, the Biden administration very smartly said, we're going to start making chips in this country. Couldn't Look, I remember I was trying to buy a car uh, in, in 2021. And there were none. And everyone was saying, hey, we can't get the chips. You know, there's there's a gazillion chips in these cars. We can't get any. Because we don't make them anymore. So smart on Biden to go ahead and do this. But I, again, I look at this Fortune magazine story and it, it goes right through saying, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to go through and we're going to we're going to recreate what we have. And, and look, the guy's right. You know, the, the, the industry, the company that can produce its, its entire supply chain can lower its costs. And China has done that. Now, what you've got in this country now, what's going on, and look, you know, Ford and all these people, they get where their future is. They now see it. You've got a Republican Party hell-bent on saying, no, we're not going to let that happen. No, yeah, we're going to we're going to block all this, which is going to going to hurt them. And it's going to hurt jobs in this country in in really bad ways. Because understand, what was it? Was a one in seven jobs in this country is tied to the auto industry. And it used to be higher years ago. Manufacturing used to be the heartbeat of, of our economy. That productive capacity, that turning raw material into finished goods, that value-added manufacturing process that we gave away. And again, we gave it away. It's not like the Chinese outcompeted us. We gave it away. U.S. corporations, greedy CEOs and, and shareholders, say, yeah, I want more. You know, the Walmarts of the world saying, hey, you got to take your, your production overseas because we want to be able to squeeze the quarter till the eagle screams so we can say you consumers get low prices. Low prices, Walmart. 
And what does that mean? Well, it means low wages. Are we surprised that Walmart is one of the, the biggest welfare queens in the country? That their employees are, are you know, in an enormous number of them are, are collecting some form of government assistance because their wages don't support a family? Are we, are we surprised by that? Are we surprised that Walmart got to be so big and powerful that they were able to squeeze manufacturers overseas while simultaneously squeezing their workers? No, we're not surprised by this. But again, then we're told we believe in competition, but we're allowing this massive consolidation. I guess I was I was I'm old enough to remember where you could go into every community across this country and there was a local department store. There were small chains of department stores. They were local stuff, regional stuff. Now you've got behemoths. We've allowed these companies and by policy, don't say, oh, that's just the market deciding. No, no. That's policy. We allowed them by not enforcing the law to consolidate to the point to where they dominate the market. And we see this in industry after industry. You know, I was I was looking at a at a story and it just it blew my mind that the CEO again, you can't make this stuff up that the CEO of Kellogg's was on TV, you know, bragging about the fact that more families are are eating cereal for dinner. Look, you you can't you cannot make this up that they're eating cereal for dinner because, you know, the cost of everything is is gone through the roof. And that the companies, you know, they're leaning into it uh, and they're advertising, you know, hey, have our, our, our crummy cereal for dinner. You know, you, funding a little tight? You're cash-strapped? You're struggling to make ends meet? Here, have this sugar-laden cereal that, that is really not great for you. It's not, gonna, not, not nutritious for you. But have this. Have one of our, our brands. And, and look, nobody's talking about the fact that um, you know, right now we're spending more on food than we have at any point in the last 30 years. Never mind the fact that corporate America is gouging our eyes out. The Groundwork Collaborative came out with a study not too long ago, said that, you know, 54% of the inflation that we're, we're suffering under is because corporate America is just raising prices because they can. Because they know they got you. They got you by the short hairs. And they know it. And you look at the cereal industry, controlled by, what, a handful of three, four companies? A handful of giant corporations who have driven up the costs of things and have pocketed the, you know, the, the spoils of, of their victory. All the while, and this again, you know, we've talked about shrinkflation. Um, all the while, the product that you're buying is shrinking. Oh, well, you didn't pay any more for it, only you got half of what you expected. But think about it for a minute and let this sink in. You got this CEO of Kellogg bragging that people are eating cereal for dinner because they can't afford to buy anything else. I, I'm waiting for one of the cat food companies to come out and go, hey, granny, it's the best cat food you can buy. And for the cheapest price, you more tuna casserole with our cat food. It's It's nuts. It's nuts what we've allowed these corporations to get away with. 
And for me, the question keeps coming back to when do we, when do we say enough is enough? When do we say stop? It seems simple to me. We need an active, engaged, without question, an active, engaged electorate who's focused on the right stuff. Focused on, hey, how do we make sure that we can make ends meet? How do we have jobs that the wages keep up with inflation? How do we do the, how do we fight for the things that are going to make our lives better and not over the nonsense that divides us? For me, that, that's the question. Want to hear your thoughts? Email me, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Questions, comments, something on your mind, rick at the ricksmithshow.com. Going to take a quick break. Right back. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1909. That was the day the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was founded. During the early years of the 20th century, the NAACP developed legal strategies to challenge anti-black violence and segregation. W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, Archibald Grimke, and Florence Kelly were just a few of the white and black intellectuals and activists who founded the organization. They sensed the urgency for a civil rights organization in the wake of the 1908 race riot in Springfield, Illinois. They hoped to combat the rapid growth of lynchings and Jim Crow statutes. Membership ballooned to almost 90,000 in less than 10 years, with more than 50 branches nationwide. These leaders opposed the gradualism of Booker T. Washington and fought to convince whites of the need for racial equality. The the NAACP investigated lynchings and targeted voter disenfranchisement and segregation through a series of lawsuits. They established a legal defense fund that organized support for the Scottsboro Boys and similar cases. They undertook the campaign to overturn the separate but equal doctrine of Plessy versus Ferguson. This resulted in the 1954 landmark decision Brown versus Board of Education. The NAACP played a central role in the civil rights movement with Rosa Parks as its secretary. They helped to organize the Montgomery bus boycott, were centrally involved in the campaign to integrate schools in Little Rock, Arkansas, and mobilized for the 1963 March on Washington for jobs and freedom. They also worked successfully toward the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The NAACP continues its important advocacy work today with some 425,000 members. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. So Nikki Haley was asked about the Alabama decision and if uh, if embryos are, are children. Uh, evidently, when you go through uh, in, virtual fetal, uh, in virtual fertilization, in vitro fertilization, I will say it, IVF, uh, when you go through this, evidently the process is they fertilize a bunch of eggs and then they freeze them. And the idea being that uh, uh, it's really expensive to do. Uh, they use you know a handful of them to for to, to try and and you know implant for fertilization and uh, and eventually take and to uh, for for a woman to have to get pregnant and have a child. Uh, so what they do is they they 
they fertilize a bunch of these and then they freeze them so that they can, you know, you know, months down the road, keep trying. And from what I know, and I've known some people over the years who have gone through this, it's a long, it can be a long, difficult, expensive process. And this is one of the ways to cheapen the process, to make it, you know, a little cheaper to do. I mean, we're talking, you know, $15,000 to do some of this stuff from what I've been told. Um, so you've got the Alabama Supreme Court that just ruled that, uh, you know, frozen embryos uh, that were created through this IVF, that these are, are now babies. Uh, and Nikki Haley said, embryos to me are babies. When you talk about an embryo, you're talking about to me, that's a life. Uh, and so I do see where that's coming from when they talk about that. Now, here's the thing. This is, you know, women start thinking about this. And, and men, you know, too. I mean, we're we're now recreating what is a baby as well. Uh, we're in interesting times, and and look, you know, the, the legal structure of this is is again fairly fluid, given the fact that one of the the justices on the Supreme Court in Alabama, this Tom Parker, uh, didn't cite you know the 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 legal case, you know, didn't go back into the Alabama. Uh, legal code and uh, didn't uh, didn't look up the you know the laws there. Uh, went to the Bible. That's right. Went to the Bible and and talked about you know the uh, you know man's creation in God's image and you know you know of, of course the one of the the, the Ten Commandments: Thou shalt not murder. Um, and and that you know every life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without occurring incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of His image as an affront to himself. This is now the law. Now remember, that stuff comes out of the Bible, uh, which they want to make the law. As I've been saying for a while, Christian Sharia law is on its way. Alabama is the start of it. And, you know, as I'm reading through this, my mind goes into a couple of places. You know, and, and there's a lot of, there's a lot to this for me because, you know, I remember a number of years ago, um, you know, a, a woman had like, I think it was like eight kids through this process. You know, her Octomom. And and someone had, had said to me, you know, well, God wouldn't give her more than she could handle. And, I, and my response was, God didn't want her to have any. Uh, it, it was this process that then gave her eight kids and basically a litter of humans. And And there's part of me that goes, maybe we don't do that. And, you know, for some that would be okay. We don't do that. Now, it does help people to have children. And I'll be honest with you, in Alabama, if we're making less Alabamans, um, that might not be a bad thing. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from my friends in Alabama. I love my friends in Alabama. But I got to tell you, some crazy stuff coming out of your state. And if we can maybe stop the creation of crazy people doing crazy stuff, maybe we won't have to deal with this. But this is where the Republican Party is taking us. This is where the theocratic portion, which has taken over the Republican Party, is leaning us. Now, the other fun part of this, and again, you know, as I was talking to my producer earlier today, we were discussing, well, you know, could this be a good thing? You know, and, and he, we, we came up with, well, you know, we could fertilize a whole bunch of eggs and claim, those, claim them as dependents. Uh, if they're actually babies, we can go fertilize a ton, you know, 100 eggs. And we wouldn't have to pay taxes ever. And this might be, this might be part of the plan, which would be fun to then argue out. 
because the IRS can't say, well, they're they're not babies, they're they're frozen. No, but the, the Supreme Court of Alabama says that those are babies. I would love to see them take that on into the U.S. Supreme Court and argue, well, <laughs> they're babies, but not for taxation purposes. And do we have to name every embryo? And what happens if the power goes out and they they, fro- they defrost? Does someone go to jail for, for mass murder, for killing all the babies? In the, this is the kind of craziness that these people are, are, are bringing to us. Now, remember, this, all this stuff was decided law. We'd figured it out. We were going along, making, doing, doing our lives. But they are so hell-bent on, on moving us backward that this doesn't matter. Now, you've got this, uh, the University of Alabama health system, they are not doing in vitro fertilization procedures anymore because of this because look who wants to go to jail over over this the other part of this that i find interesting can they vote uh if they're if they're frozen for 18 years (laughs) i mean this is how absurd some of this stuff gets and to have a politician like Nikki Haley come out and say, yeah, I'm, I'm all in favor of embryos, embryos being people. And does the state with the most embryos get more representation? And you go, Rick, you're being ludicrous. No, this is these are very serious questions that these people have opened a Pandora's box to. Legal, legal people are going to have a heyday with this. And the thing that gets me is, again, Alabama's got some real problems. They've just created another one. It's, well, it's almost like they want chaos. It's almost like they lost the abortion issue to run on. So they needed to create some other chaos to keep people angry and at each other's throats. But I got to tell you, you know, this is, this is a weird place that we're in. And if we allow the theocratic Republican Party to take over, I guarantee you, Christian Sharia law is around the corner. And it may not be you today. This may not be an issue that's important to you today. But I'll tell you, it's an issue that it's an issue that affects a lot of people. And the next one, the next one may affect you. I'm telling you, scary times, scary times ahead, my friends. Want to hear your thoughts? Are you are you in favor of of making them babies? I want to hear your thoughts. Email me, rick at thericksmithshow.com. If you miss any portion of the program, grab the podcast. Wherever you get your favorite podcast, you'll meet, you'll find ours. Thanks so much for being here. We will see you back here next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.